Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Recorded live. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's obviously Wednesday evening, and of course that means you're listening to the NGSC Weekly Show on NGSC Sports Radio at iHeartRadio, powered by NGSCSports.com. I'm your host, Joshua Zimmer, and of course, always joined by my IQ, John Doucette. John, how you doing this evening? Josh, it's always good to be with you. Hey, that it's always good. It's always good to have you on, John. It's always it's always good to have that, that educated mind to, to educate us young bucks uh, in the world of sports. But, of course, I don't just have the IQ. I have my brother from another, my partner in crime, out of Chicago, Illinois, Montel Hardy. Montel, how are you doing this evening? Uh, doing great, Josh. Uh, another day in paradise with you gentlemen. And, you know, as always, people can catch us at gscsports.com. Go ahead and click on the red box, and we're going to get rolling. <laughs> hey, yes, sir, we're going to get rolling indeed. Well, uh I know this first one might might come as a surprise to you, uh, John, uh, with you just starting to get acclimated to Twitter. Uh, Montel, I knew I sent this one to you immediately. Uh, It's pretty funny, um, and it's actually kind of interesting. For those of you who don't know, Hazma Abdullah is a safety uh, in the NFL. I believe the last team he was with was with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he had some pretty choice words for a Mr. Michael Sam after the uh, fiasco, if you want to call it that, after the veteran combine. Uh, Some of these going, I will actually read some of them off to you uh, because it's actually really good. Uh, He tags Michael Sam in a tweet and says, bruh, you got to stop lying to everyone, but most importantly, stop lying to yourself. What are you trying to prove? He goes on to continue to say, if you want to be a sideshow, just admit it and keep doing you. Uh, just know it's a limited shelf life. When they're done with you, they'll move on to someone bigger with the, or someone else with a bigger name and bigger fan base. Don't be a tool. Get those people who don't know what they're doing from behind you and get around some people who know their craft. Agents, trainers, coach, nutritionists, if you're serious about football, cut, cut all the other BS out and go train. You, can make it, you can't make the club in the tub but you dang sure can't make it with them dancing shoes on. Just my ah, two cents. Okay, so this is all about anything. the dancing. This is all about the dancing with the stars appearance. I, I think so, but I think it might have a little bit more to do with it. He, he finishes his rant by saying, just my two cents. I don't know much about anything, but I know when a cat's been working out and when he hasn't, period. 
go work out in rant. Uh, so, I mean, let's open it up. I mean, really, uh, when I read that on Monday, and then, of course, I sent it to you, Montel, uh, I was kind of blown away by it. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't think it's Hosma Abdullah's place to say yeah. that, uh, considering the fact that this is a guy who, granted, he was he was an undrafted free agent, uh, and he has worked his tail off to be able to survive and make teams. But this ain't a guy who's a clear-cut star. Uh, this is a guy who's, you know, skating on the edge of his pants, who had to have not be for him signing an extension, or even you can go as far as Eric Perry, uh, unfortunately having his Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, this guy wouldn't have a job. Uh, that's kind of my two cents on it. Montel, I'm going to open it up to you uh, first. What is your kind of take behind the whole thing? Is he really poking at Dancing with the Stars, or is he poking about uh, the fact that he's trying to just make it look like he's trying to be in the NFL? Uh, well, you know, there's a few different things you can touch on here, but the first thing you think when you hear the when you read the tweet is, you know, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> tell me how you really feel, you know, and and that's a, that to me is the theme here because essentially you said you said it right, Josh. Uh, Abdullah, you know, he. He's not the best player, but then again, if it was, I think this would be a huge, you know, a lot, you know, a lot bigger of a story. I think the key here is you have to look at what he's done and where he's come from, right? So a lot of people saw a guy like him do was kind of a tryhard, a guy who's going to be hanging around in camp, from camp to camp, from team to team. And these are people who really fight, like, on edge to have a career, you know, really do. And then sometimes he looks at guys like Michael Sam, who, you know, in his opinion, probably isn't as talented as he as Abdullah is, and and he also probably feels like a lot of uh, attention was given to him because of you know the way he lives his personal life and uh, the NFL's infatuation with him. So uh, a guy like uh, Abdullah kind of looks at this and says, well. Uh, maybe if I had, you know, just half of his buzz, you know, I'd be starting somewhere right now without someone being hurt. And, he, you know, he, he could be right if he's as much of a practice player as he's going to claim to be with all these tweets. Uh, so I can understand the anger there, but the tirade was <laughs> – it, it was a lot. Uh, but to his credit, you look know, at Michael Sam and some of the things he's done. Sometimes you just got to pay your bills, right? So he didn't, it didn't work out, so he's doing Dance with the Stars to keep some money in his pocket and, and you know, do you. But at the same time – he could have been in a little bit better shape. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, you have Michael Bush out here running five-second 40s. A lot of these guys, uh, Sam is just a year older, and he was probably one of the younger guys there. I find it ironic to go on the Veterans Combine when he hadn't really played a regular season in the NFL down. You know, he's technically at the end of his would-be rookie year. But anyways, he's one of the youngest guys there. He should be one of the few people actually, you know, not necessarily peaking, but not doing worse. And so I think that's what you got to look at, too. Uh, people were just looking for a clue, you know, but he had weight, drop weight. I mean, he could have both up in a, maybe, a, you know, a, a three-tech. You know, I mean, I don't know. But I think the bottom line here is he didn't come in and show anything really different. But what we do see is him on these promos. We see him on TV. We, we see those things. And, uh, you know, it makes you wonder. But at the end of the day, he's, he's got to put some money in his pocket and do something. And uh, it's really a shame he can't do it playing football. I think that's the number one thing. John, now, me and Montel come from, obviously, the, the younger age of, you know, understanding entire uh, age on, on Twitter. Uh, obviously, from a, from a little bit older standpoint, uh, really, uh, what, what is your, your take on this? Um, 
is it is it meaningless news? Uh, you know, is it exactly what Montel and myself said uh, that it's uh, just a guy, ty- you know, going on a tirade, or uh, is there a little bit of weight behind this? I don't know if there's weight behind it. I would call it somewhat meaningless. I mean, look. You know, Michael Sam has probably been working out for Dancing with the Stars since I would say mid-February, probably, uh, depending upon when he was informed uh, that uh, Disney and ABC had had picked him for this show. So let's say he's been he's been in Los Angeles in the dance studio since let's say the middle of February. If he has the ability to to make it work on this show, he's probably going to stay on this show if he goes all the way to the finals. That would be at least the middle of May, probably the end of May. So the idea of him uh, doing any football activity from then until, say, you know, say the week before Memorial Day, for instance, is going to be a very difficult thing for him to do. So from that perspective, I can understand somebody being a little, I'd say, jealous of, of what Michael Sam might be doing on the side here. Um, and, hey, I, I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, there are a lot of different factors that are involved with that particular show that allow you to stay on for a significant period of time. I mean, who knows? If Sam is bad, I mean, he's going to get dropped sooner rather than later. So it would allow him to eventually go back to uh, preparing for whatever football season he might uh, envision himself to have with any team that might be interested in him. Look, he's not the first NFL football player, or in his case, he's not really an NFL football player, not necessarily on a roster, but he's not the first football player that's been a part of this show. I mean, Emmett Smith won this thing years back. So while they were still on NFL rosters. Exactly, while they were uh, yeah. still on rosters. So, I mean, um, I mean, Dancing with the Stars, I'm sure, picked Michael Sam because of the um, – um, I don't want to say controversial nature, but let's face it, uh, you know, his, his openly uh, uh, coming out of the closet, I'm sure, piqued their interest. And that's the reason why they invited him to take part in the show. And so he agreed to do it. Uh, whether it's a wise move or not certainly remains to be seen. But I can understand, you know, ABC's interest in him, Disney's interest in him, and why they picked him to do the show. And, uh, you know, what he makes of it uh, remains to be seen. Exactly, John. Uh, again, both of you guys, great points. Uh, you know, we're going to have to keep an eye on it closer to see if maybe once the show starts, uh, maybe possibly. Well, it already has, has started. Uh, I mean, that show has already started. Well, then we're going to have to keep an eye on Hosma's uh, Twitter handle because I've got a feeling that if, if he went on a tirade uh, this early in the show, uh, you can expect it to continue to go on. You know what I think becomes interesting? If Sam makes a run in this show, I mean, if he stays on through April, if he gets into the middle of May and he's still on that show, it'll be interesting to see uh, the tweets that come out. But more importantly, it'll be interesting to see what the general public thinks because they're the ones that are going to vote him either on that show or off that show at some point. Exactly. Uh, I've never watched the show. Uh, Maybe I might have to tune in just to see how it goes. Uh, But joining us now out of Connecticut, I believe, is Coach Dowdy. Coach Dowdy, how are you doing this evening? Good. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Thank you. I'd like to introduce you to my two co-hosts, Montel Hardy and John Doucette. I believe you know John uh, from earlier. That's correct. Coach, how are you? Uh, great to meet you. Great to meet you. So, Coach Dowdy, uh, first and foremost, uh, out of Eastern Connecticut State, uh, tell us a little bit about your football program. 
Well, currently we have a, a uh, club football program at the Eastern Connecticut State University. It's uh, one of four of the state universities throughout the state. Um, and it's been in, I think, for about four years now. I've been involved in the last two seasons um, as a defensive coordinator, and, and this season coming up will be my first time taking over as the head coach. Um, but we, we have a pretty competitive schedule. We, we play uh, throughout what we call with the Yankee Conference up and down the, the East Coast here. And, you know, it's a pretty exciting program just getting started. That's a... Uh... That's real big, you know. For me, I'm a I'm a West Coast guy. You know, I'm currently in Minot, uh, North Dakota. Uh, so all we see is uh, FCS and Division Two. Uh, it's pretty cool to hear about the you know the teams going back east uh, out in John's location. I know John's out uh, in the Boston area uh, to kind of hear how you know they operate and things of that nature. Uh, getting into your your defense coordinator background, uh, what type of defense did you guys run? Well, the defense itself is a flex defense. Um, basically, my experience, I, I've been a, a defense coordinator for about 28 years here in Connecticut underneath a great head coach that I actually played for in high school. And it's, it's a split four base D, um, but it's so flexible based on set variations that we see. We can be in a cover three, a cover two. We can be in a, a man free. We can be in man straight across. It's it really very flexible based on the scouting report of the team we're coming up against. That's awesome. Yeah, Montel knows me uh, fairly well. Uh, he knows that I love defense, and so he, I'm sure he was knowing that once you said defense coordinator, that was going to be the first question uh, that I asked, uh, especially coming from uh, my background. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to my two, uh, to my two co-hosts now. I'm going to turn it over to John first. Uh, John, what do you have for Coach this evening? Coach, how do, how do you put this schedule together? I mean, I, you, you talked about the old Yankee Conference. You play teams like Vermont. You play teams like Hartford. Uh, Clarkson would be, would be another one. How do you find these schools? Is, is there a, uh, um, some sort of a, uh, a league that uh, really allows you the opportunity to, uh, to schedule these schools, or do you have to just go out and find them on your own? Oh, no, actually, it's it, coming into it, you know, I come into an existing scenario. It's very well established, um, the club football, across the nation, actually. Um, there's a couple main um, associations. There's the NCFA, which is the National Club Football Association, which is the, the national platform for the Yankee Conference and a number of other conferences that play underneath that NCFA. Um, so basically, when, when we're part of the conference itself, we play interconference games, and then we have the ability to reach out to other club football programs that may be independent or in a different conference, just to you know, get more numbers on the schedule and more teams. Um, but it's a very organized uh, scenario, definitely, and, and, and I can see that the, the club football organizations take it pretty serious. How do you put your roster together? I, I... Is there recruiting involved, or are, are there tryouts that are, are to, that take place at some point during, say, the summertime? Uh, how does this roster uh, uh, come together? Well, well, picking up from a previous season, for example, um, we don't, we, you know, I, I've, I've coached, you know, basically for 30 years, and we never really take time off, even in the off season. So I'm bringing that approach to Eastern. So from the last game, we've been having uh, regular meetings twice a week where we're going over, you know, defensive things, watching game films, finding our mistakes, correcting errors, things like that. A lot of preparation for what we have is our spring um, time coming. We start on Monday, actually, 
for our first three weeks of spring um, ball. And then we have a, a spring game against Central Connecticut University. Um, give us something to prepare for, and, and they're a good rival, and then we have a good relationship with them. The recruiting aspect, it really comes down to the kids. You know, I really try to stress to be out there on the campus, whether it's wearing your jersey around campus. We have business cards that are recruiting cards for individuals. You know, it, it doesn't – being a club, it doesn't provide the same level that you get with a divisional program. Even a D3 program has a lot more flexibility and, and ability to go and, and seek out people and, and draw them to the program. A lot of times it takes convincing. Um, we take everybody we get. There's a the, – the, the, if you call it a – you know, to try out for the, the, the program, it really comes down to whether or not you make it through the practices. I don't, I don't have a, a – a, soft way to do things. I can only coach the way that I know, and I just coach that expectation. <laughs> Last <laughs> man standing, I, you get a jersey. <laughs> from, from a financial point of view, Coach, how difficult is a club football program to fund? You know, it, I think the, the hardest part of the club football program is, in, in my respect, from what I've seen over the few years of, of sitting with um, some of the Eastern people, it has to do with a, a lack of understanding of what football is. It's so much different than any other kind of club sport. There's a very popular club team. The rugby team at Eastern is a, you know, very well known and well respected, but the requirements are so far less than what a football program takes. So part of it is trying to get a, a, a common ground of understanding of what we need for equipment. You know, if we have 50 kids show up at, at tryouts and we can only suit up 35 we're almost guaranteed to, to lose that top 15. So it's those kinds of details that, that we're working on to try to build up the equipment base that we can keep all the players that do come out and not have to limit it based on equipment needs. Um, Fundraising is a big part of it. And, and, you know, the university is very generous. They, they fund the program as needed. It, it is just that one thing of knowing more of what we need will probably get a little more contribution from the university to, to actually meet all the needs. And that would include potential travel expenses for the times that you actually play on the road. You know, and, and again, that's one of the things that they never have an issue with. They, they're, very, they're very good at making sure the travel expenses are, are covered within the budget. And if it ever pushes it over to the budget, you know, it's a, it's a funny scenario with, with the way that they run the, the, the buses. You have to wait till last minute. In, in New England, a lot of buses are pre-reserved for going to see the change of season and seeing the colors. We have to actually wait for a bus to be canceled to get a bus scheduled. So sometimes on Friday, we got a game on Saturday going to Clarkson. We don't have a bus until Friday at 5. You know, so there's, there's some logistics there. So sometimes you run over budget. You predict a certain amount, and it costs more. The school's been really supportive there, and, and they take care of that. Um, so the travel's always there. It's equipment. You know, it really comes down to equipment and being able to suit everybody up so they can, uh, you know, stay with the program. Your ability to wear different hats, I think, is, is got to be a requirement to make this thing really work. You know, I, I think it comes down to personality. Watching the previous head coach, who was actually a high school player of mine, I love the guy, he's great, um, but his approach didn't really meet all those kinds of hats. And, it, and it's more of an open-mindedness. You can't come with an expectation that if you put, you know, a list together that someone necessarily is going to respect it. You can't necessarily run a practice a certain way and expect the kids to be entertained by it and be, you know. So there's little things that you learn you know, and again, I, I've had the benefit of being around great coaches as I came up and, and learned, to, you know, how to coach football. So that example maybe fails for a lot of people, and therefore they, they're not successful at trying to, you know, manage a number of different things. 
it, it's, you know, coaching is the biggest problem. We only have one coach on staff, and that's me. Everybody else uh, I'm relying on is, as volunteers. Exactly. And that's, go, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say that the last question I have is, is one that I'm really, really interested in, and that is when players get hurt. How does the university handle the insurance aspect of players that get hurt? Because we're not talking about scholarship players here. So is it different with a club program as opposed to one at a D level? You know, I can't speak on the D level other than, you know, I think that, you know, there's a whole other process there that I think the Eastern is moving towards with its club program this past year. They actually hired an athletic training staff and and provided an athletic training room solely for club athletes. Um, so we're not kind of piggybacking on the divisional level trainers that, that need to deal with their varsity level athletes. Um, so they're moving in that direction. We have trainers at practice whenever we have, you know, hitting going on and stuff like that. I know that in, in Connecticut the, the normal process is if you don't have insurance from your parents, for example, when you come to the university, you have to secure uh, an insurance policy, health-wise insurance. They actually have a health center on campus for kids can be able to go in there and stuff. Um, we've been really fortunate. We've had a, just a few, you know, injuries, you know, over the last two years that I've been there. Um, and everybody seems to be, you know, handling it well as far as the finances, whether the school takes care of it or their insurance company takes care of it. I, I can't say, but no one's ever complained to me that, that, you know, they got stuck with something because of playing with football. Good. All right, Montel, what do you, what do you got? Uh, sure. You just uh, touched on it. I was curious about his ability to wear multiple hats. So uh, in terms of organizing practices, positional drills, I mean, what's a normal practice like? I'm sure you have to be in a lot of different areas at once. Well, the difficulty, and it actually, you know, I think my experience coaching at high school is actually a benefit to running a club program. In a divisional program, you obviously have an offensive side of the ball and a defensive side of the ball, and you have specific coaches that can take those groups away, and therefore you can be doing the same type of practice during the day. Offense can be working offense while defense is working defense. We don't have that luxury at Eastern. So we run the practices throughout the week as if it's a high school practice where one day is an offensive practice and everybody has an offensive position that they have to learn. It's then a defensive practice where everybody has to be in a defensive group. And, you know, you go from there. Given that it's not a recruitment-based um, roster, sometimes you've got, you know, your best athlete might, might have two, three roles. You know, he might be offensive starter or defensive starter and, and a special teams guy simply because there's nobody else that can do what he does. And, you know, I'm all about putting my best 11 out there first. I'm sure. And, uh, you know, with that said, in terms of uh, game planning and strategy, uh, what are some ways that you're able to kind of, uh, you know, uh, you get the most from your players um, you know, because I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of different people in terms of uh, size, uh, speed, and that type of thing. Uh, has there been any uh, game plan shifts on offense, on defense? Are you a multiple offense, defense kind of guy? Do you stick to one system and just find a way to mold people? Uh, from year to year, what's the playbook look like? Well, well, okay, year to year the playbook, you know, sadly has, in my last two years, and I, I've dealt with defense, so my playbook's consistent, but the offense has changed, and, and it you know, I think the coach was trying to find a system that worked for the type of players he had, and, and sadly every year you have a different type of group. Um, we've always done – we've run a wing tee and, and, a, and a version of a spread wing tee for, you know, better than 20 years. We used to go to Delaware for clinics and learn from there. And, uh, and I'm taking that over to, to the school where we have a, at least a systematic approach to a play-action run game 
And then we do run spread out of that where we have, uh, you know, set variations and stuff like that. We can be in trips. We can be in uh, twins, you know, things like that. Um, but what stays the same is the, is the language, is the terminology. So when I'm calling something out of a spread set that's a run play, it may very well be a veer, which we would call within a play action series. Uh, but the consistency is what helps the kids, having one system that goes across the board, that it's, it's more or less a translation. You know, they just have to do a little bit of quick understanding of what the route number was that they're assigned to and things like that. So uh, they're grasping it. It's been a lot of what we've been putting in in the offseason because it's going to be all new to them. Um, they've been running a spread system with, with really not a spread, you know, group, and that, that was really difficult to watch. Sure, and, um, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, uh, I was, geez, I, I was really, really uh, interested in what you mentioned earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, you have a, a plethora of experience in high school, and, and you know, so shifting onto this club team, uh, it seems like maybe being a club team gives you a little bit more freedom or flexibility. Am I missing something in terms of maybe grades and then, of course, you know, conduct? There are really no defined rules. I think I played a club sport in college. You really don't have to be eligible or anything, right? Well, no, there are there are certainly, um, as far as the university is concerned, um, my understanding is that you have to be enrolled for a minimum of nine credits to be eligible for any of the club programs. Um, each club is, is guidelined and, and driven by the student activities, so whatever, you know, whatever guidelines that they, they have set up for their clubs itself, in general, we have to abide by. And then each team has its own charter. And so within that charter, there can be, you know, guidelines and, and things that, you know, have expectations written into them that also have consequences for, you know, failure to, to adhere to. Um, so there is a lot of room. I actually had a meeting yesterday with, with the assistant director of the student activities about that, and he was, you know, basically suggesting that, you know, it'd be a good thing for me to put my expectations in there um, so that they're in writing, you know, and that's something that we'll be working on. Cool, cool. I'll go ahead and kick it to you, Josh. I'm curious about the student body, Coach. How, what kind of a uh, uh, attendance do you get for home games? What kind of support do you get from them uh, during the fall for football? You know, I, I think as far as the student body is concerned, the the hardest part is is getting – getting the word out that, that we exist as a program. You know, it, it's it's not something that we've been getting a lot of national recognition over. It's not something that, you know, the, the team itself stands out and is a draw to the university. Um, at this point, you know, we're, we're getting more and more kids that, that are hearing about it coming out and being interested. Um, but ultimately, it, it really comes down to, you know, the resources and the capacity to handle the different numbers. We can take on more than what we do already simply because we don't have all the equipment needs, we don't have all the other things like that. Um, so it, it, it really comes down, I think, that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work in progress from what I see. But it, it's a work in progress that it appears, based on, on, on what you've been saying so far, that uh, seems to be on the upswing, not necessarily on, on the downswing in any way, shape, or form. Well, you know, I, I, I see it as on the upswing, given, given that it's it's in its fifth year and, and it's gaining support as far as, you know, we've had discussions, for example, one of the topics I had yesterday was about divisional level versus, you know, club. And, and again, that flexibility that, that you had mentioned, I, I think that that's probably the one thing that draws me to the position. I think that not having a divisional level program 
on a coach myself, it certainly takes a lot of stress off the expectations that are on me, and, and certainly the demand of my time is much different than if it was a, a regular program. The problem, again, with that flexibility comes the kids have that same level of flexibility. You know, they, they can come to practice. They can have conflicts in schedule where they can't come to practice because they have classes or things like that. So it runs into, you know, some things are really good about having that flexibility and some things, you know, kind of hurt you. You mentioned classes. How difficult is it in, in during a game week, uh, practice week, to be able to get the entire roster to show up to practice? Um, you know, I, I, I would say that I've, I've yet to see the entire roster show up to practice. Um, and, and, again, that's, that's a combination of things. You have certain individuals who are part-time players in their mind. And, right. you know, you start with that. You also have the conflicts and schedules and work and things like that. You know, you can't tell a kid, no, don't go to work, when, you know, he's not getting anything out of this program to help him get by. You know, it's not like he's – on a scholarship or anything like that. So, you know, you have to make that room for those kinds of things. My son himself, he's, he's in a program down in Southern Connecticut, and his life is entirely different. You know, the, the, the routine of getting up and doing the workouts, the meetings during the day, you know, the expectations of the coaching staff in general, you know. So the experience is very different for each athlete, you know. In a club program, you've got to make room for what the kids need in life, you know. You can't tell them, no, don't go to work, you have to come to practice. So there's always that, uh, uh, well, I, I don't want to say revolving door, but there's always that adjustment that you have to make during the week based on the number of kids that show up for practice and, and making sure that everybody's on the same page uh, once game day comes so that uh, uh, your performance can be uh, as, as coordinated as possible. That would be the ideal, you know, but again, yeah. you have you have a core group, and that's that's the reason why I, I've stayed with the program. I, I you know, I, I really like the core group. It, you know, there's always, in any program, a, a group that really you admire their, their commitment to, to football, and, and it's something that maybe you share in that. Um, so I coach for that reason, and, and I try to, you know, I try to reach out to the individual that doesn't seem wholeheartedly committed and, and to find out why. You know, that one of the first things is to really know your athlete. You know, sometimes you've got to cut an athlete slack. I get a lot of defensive guys who think they're just pure defensers and don't have to come to offensive meetings and don't have to worry about offensive practices. And, and you know, you've got to convince them about their role is that maybe they're not working for a starting position, but they're helping the guy who is. You know, and you got to convince them that the whole team effort is really what it's about. If you can get that kid to understand that, he'll, he'll be there next time. You know, he'll be on time. He'll he'll make arrangements with his work. He'll do the right things to try to make football more important in his life. How hectic is your day? <laughs> um, you know, it's pretty hectic. I mean, beyond just football, I, I do have a number of other things that I do. Um, but as far as, as far as during the, the times now, especially as, as we're starting crunch towards the season, you know, it's a lot of, you know, getting the emails out there, you know, making sure they understand what the, the three weeks of practice is going to be, developing that three weeks of practice. I'm, I'm pretty OCD, so I like to have all three weeks written out every day, what we're going to do, what drills we're going to do, what time frames we're going to do them in, you know, and, and really try to follow that flow. But, again, as you mentioned, you know, you miss five guys, and they're your five starters on offense. You don't have an offensive practice that day, you know. You just So they can really handicap you on that level, you know. It, 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 that adjustment to 
things like that. You know, you find a better way to do something. You start improving somebody who's a backup and convince them that, hey, listen, you're the guy who's here. It doesn't make you the backup anymore, you know. So you put pressure on kids that way to, to show up by, you know, aiding in the competition. But the, the the plus side to all of this is the fact that you love what you're doing, and obviously the kids that are playing in this program also still love playing the game of football. So um, it sounds to me like the pluses outweigh the minuses. Yeah, you know, I, I really don't have too many minuses to point out. You know, I, I think that, again, you know, there's to experience it and to do it and to work with kids that, you know, you don't have to convince it it's a good idea to work hard. You've got kids there that, that are working hard, harder than I expected in some cases. You know, so you do, you get those guys that are dedicated, maybe when they weren't, you know, the best on their team. One of the things I find a lot of the guys that I have that are really good players, I'm like, why aren't you somewhere else? And it's like he was stuck behind somebody who went somewhere else. You know, so it's like, damn, you didn't get your day in the sun. You know, he really could have gone somewhere, but, hey, I'm happy to have him. How underrated is club football? I, I think very underrated by by just the reputation of it being a club. You know, this is a serious game. I mean, we play against teams like Southwest Connecticut and Onondaga out in New York. These, these are divisional-level athletes that are trying to get their grades up. These guys have scholarships waiting for them, you know, and so when you can play these kinds of teams, this is not a joke. And I, I recommend to some kids I see come out that, you know, this may not be your sport to try, you know, because it's a very serious physical game. It is, it, you're playing against some pretty hard hitters. Is that the thing that some of your kids find surprising when they start to play these games, that this is not necessarily uh, as much fun as they may have thought, that there is some seriousness that is associated with it? I think that was the experience of last year's team. You know, two years ago we had a great team. We actually almost made it to nationals, you know, but a great portion of that team left. And so we had a, a huge influx of new kids. And I kept trying to tell them, you know, leading into the season, you guys don't understand. You've got to take this more seriously. The people you're playing against are working hard. They're taking it serious. So we got into a few games that it, it was shock value. You know, it was, it was runaway train very early on simply because the kids just didn't realize that the speed of the game is, is for real. Now, the one thing you just mentioned that I didn't even realize was you said playoffs. There is a, a national club playoff format, a setup? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really an exciting thing. It's actually one of the reasons, again, why I want to stick with this club program at Eastern. You know, first of all, I only live five minutes from the university, so it's a great okay. you know, opportunity there. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a whole – you know, it, it, there's a developing playoff system, but there is a national championship in, in for what they call the ICFF, and uh, that's played in Canton, Ohio, you know, right where the Hall of Fame is. That really? Would be, yeah, I was so shocked to learn that. When I, when I came on board, I'm like, that's what we want, man. That's what we want. We want to play in Canton. What more can you do than take a club football program to a place like that and do something? Uh. Listen to you, I, I, I'm really surprised that there is such a thing, but I also think it's a great thing because, let's face it, if these kids are going to put the uniform off, they're going to put the pads on, um, to give them something to, to strive for and to potentially play for is a great thing. Yeah, you, you have to have that, that, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing for kids. You know, most kids, you know, it would take a, a true, true football fan to play for no reason. You know, 
kids especially nowadays, it's, it's all about some kind of level of respect or some kind of level of, you know, whatever they, they notorieties, you know, the kids are very big on self-promotion. So, you know, to have a goal in mind and to, to be able to even mention the fact that we were, you know, knocking on the door, you know, is, is pretty exciting, you know. You're not interested in elevating this program to a D level, I'm guessing. You know, in speaking, it would be ideal in the respect that east of Hartford, there is no other state university that has a football program, and it would be hard to probably say there is even a football program divisional east of Hartford. So eastern being, you know, a great opportunity for, you know, many communities within a 45-minute drive, you know, for families to be able to support their athletes at the university. The problem is there's a, there's a twofold issue. First is always finance. You know, my understanding is it's a twenty plus million dollar investment initial to be able to accommodate that football program. Um, that's not in the budget, you know, and, and that's really the biggest problem that we have in terms of trying to discuss at the divisional level is that they, they deal with budget cuts every year at the university. They can't they can't pose that. You know, whether or not there's a way around it, I've always thought that maybe the legislature itself should look at it and, and make those funds available for the reason that, they, you know, you've got kids leaving areas of Connecticut and going out of state or completely out of the area for their families to be able to watch them play. Why not have something localized? It's a university. True. That's true. And And now, the high school football in that area, does it provide you with – potentially enough players to, to let this program sustain itself for a long period of time? I think that if it was a divisional level, um, the answer is yes. I think that there's a great, you know, football um, tradition throughout the East. And, and I've certainly coached against and had coached for, you know, a number of really good divisional athletes that have gone on to some great things. Um, so I think there is talent in the area. Whether or not, you know, a newly developed divisional program will draw them immediately, I don't think so. Um, but I think that it will be a place that a lot of that good talent could land, and it, and it could be a very good program. But there's a number of things that have to happen before that beyond just the financing. We have to be able to show the support within the whole student body alone. You know, so until we can actually fill our roster, carry, you know, the 55 that we're allowed – and, you know, fill the stands with the student body that shows that following, there, there's not going to be a localized interest to really drive that into somebody's lap and say, hey, we really have something here we should do something with. Nobody wants to invest millions of dollars in a project that's going to lose millions of dollars. Coach, I think this is fascinating. I really do. I, I didn't realize that club football had this kind of uh, um, situational setup, really. I, I just thought that this was something that uh, I would have considered a recreational sport. You know, and and I think that that's how a lot of people do hear it when they hear that it's a, a club sport. Um, you know, it, it, until you actually go to a game, say, for example, and, and watch it, or even go online. You can do a search all, all day about, you know, the, the whole club football national scene for, for you know, um, colleges and stuff. There's some great universities out there that have programs, you know. So it is it is there. Whether it has a big following beyond just the, the student body that, that represents the teams, I can't say, but we have a great family base um, following. We, we've gone, you know, an eight-hour ride on a bus and had just as many people in our home stands, you know, on that side as we would in, in, a, in our home games. So, you know, the families themselves, they're definitely dedicated to, to, their, to the kids and to the program and very supportive wherever we go.
Okay, Montel, you got any more questions? I like this. Oh, no, you got covered it, man. I, You know, I'm fresh out of questions. Really? You know, you know Boston, uh, yeah. has a, Boston has a club program there, the Terriers. <laughs> That's right, they do, yes. And, and at one time they, they were a D-level program, and then uh, uh, they did uh, eventually uh, drop it and, and become a club program. Um, Vermont is another one that, I mean, when you talk about some of these schools like Vermont and Clarkson, they're known for other sports, hockey in particular. Um, so I would think that uh, I don't know if the money that they generate from those sports really helps their club football programs. Probably not. I would assume that money probably goes to their recruiting of their um, high-level sports. But um, still, what kind of, of support do you, do you see from other schools as you make the rounds uh, during your seasons? You know, I think that the teams that we play, and you mentioned Vermont, and let me tell you, you know, as, a, as an alpha male coach, I'll say I don't really have a lot of respect for too many programs out there. I can find faults with many of them. I love these guys in Vermont. It's a program that had its division a level and, and lost it, and yet maintained a following within that, that Vermont area where kids want to go to Vermont just to play on the club program. You know, that's a, that's a big deal to them. They run a fantastic program. Let me tell you, man, again, when you're talking about the seriousness of this, you know, it's a club program, but you're talking about some of these coaches are highly recruited coaches from other universities that are actually left divisional programs and work in this club arena. Why? Why is club football getting that kind of uh, popularity? I, I, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> I, I, I can't say why, you know, but it, it definitely has a different vibe, I think, for the coaches that, that, you know, maybe especially those that have been in divisional level program and now come down and work with some of these very successful club programs. Um, it, it, there's a, it's a stress-free environment for the most part because you basically, you know, work on a different level with the kids. You know, you have to have a different relationship with volunteer kids. It really is something that, you know, it fosters a different kind of team than a, a divisional team that, you know, again, everybody wants to be the star and there's very little respect across, you know, positions and stuff like that, much more competition in a divisional program. You know, so maybe there's something there, something there that they seek as a career move, you know. Certainly not a financial decision, that's for sure. Um, is but is it just a better alternative? It's just a lot of fun, and it may be a better alternative. I'm I'm real excited about, you know, putting the high school behind me, although that was a great thing. But, again, you, you deal with, you know, again, kids that you got to convince it's a good idea to listen to you. you got to convince them it's a good idea to pay attention. When you're dealing with young adults, you know, they're there for a reason, and, and they want you to be there. That's the first thing. They don't respect you as a coach. Then you're going to have a hard time every day. But when they respect you, you get their attention pretty quick. I mean, there's an interesting fine line you're walking here, obviously between running a, a football program, a club program, and at the same time providing kids with the opportunity to get the education, which is why they went there in the first place. It sounds like that you certainly slide toward the educational aspect of it as opposed to, um, you know, the, the football part. I mean, uh, after all, you, you want these kids to graduate, and I would assume that you've got a pretty good uh, uh, graduation rate among your, your club players. You know, I, I've only seen a couple um, have to go on and move out of the university, and I haven't followed them if they've went on to a different university and, and, and finished up their degrees. But I would say that, you know, we're probably an 
graduation rate based That's on just good. numbers off the top of my head. I think it's great. You know, and, and part, part of that is the flexibility in their time. They have no excuses when we only have practice, you know, two and a half hours a day. They have absolutely no excuses not to have their work done. And, and one of the things I really hate is you telling me you've got to study during practice when you've had all day and you've got all night. You can give me mm. two hours. <laughs> hey, jo- hey, John, uh, uh, Josh, are we uh, up against the break here? Yep, yeah, we're we're getting close to the break. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep it with Coach Dowdy Montel. We'll throw you uh, to a NGSC Sports quick break. Okay, I'm Montel Hardy. This is an NGSC Sports news break. Just a reminder: you can listen to NGSCSports.com. Just go on, click the red talk shoe box, and join us live. In the news now, there's nearly uh, 10 months to the day that four-year-old Leah still has been diagnosed with a rare pediatric cancer that gave her a 50-50 chance of surviving. Doctors informed her and her father, Bengals defensive tackle Devon Still, that she's officially in remission, according to an ESPN report. Uh, Is there a West Virginia upset on the rise? West Virginia guard Daxter Miles Jr. told Cleveland reporters, quote, I give them their props. Salute them for getting a 36-0. But tomorrow they're going to be 36-1, and one, end quote. According to Yahoo Sports, it sounds like Miles Jr. and the rest of West Virginia Mountaineers are confident and ready for this weekend's matchup against the Kentucky Wildcats. Be sure to check out the hottest stories uh, also on NGSCSports.com, Thursday Night March Madness Preview, and Yamio Yager's place in NHL history, both by our own Twan Staley, and why the rant to the Knicks makes sense by NGSC's own G. Stelio. You can check out these stories and so many more on our homepage and at NGSCSports.com. Once again, you're listening to the NGSC Weekly Flagship Show on NGSC Sports Radio, available on iHeart, Spreaker, and iTunes. I'm Montel Hardy. Back to you, Josh. Hey, thank you, Montel. And, of course, we are still joined by Coach Dowdy from Eastern Kentucky or, uh, Connecticut State. Excuse me. Uh, John, you're, you're killing it so far. Uh, we're going to continue just to give you the reins and let it go. Uh, you guys are giving us some good, uh, some good stuff. I, I just find this fascinating. I, I just didn't realize that, that club football had this kind of a life. Um, and I think that uh, it does become a better alternative for kids who aren't necessarily either from a skill level or even from an attitude level interested in playing at the D level. Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, Exactly. I, you know, my experience is also I have had a couple of divisional level players come to the program, um, and and a few from the Division One AA, which would be the FCS. And you know, it, it, I think it it depends on the kind of kid. There's some kids that have a certain level of sensitivity, and I don't mean a sensitive side, but I mean they got to work with the right people, or they totally throw in the towel and they and they lose interest and. You know, I, I've worked with those guys, and, you know, you can get it that way. You can you can find the right nut for the bolt, even though it's not a divisional program. It offers that kid exactly what he wants, which is the opportunity to play. This which sounds like a athlete. win-win for everybody involved. You know, one of my selling points to athletes when I talk to them is this. It, you know, you can go ahead and go off and do a junior college stint. I hear a lot of them talking about going to junior college before they go off to – you know, a university, I'm like, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you going to get out of it? You come to a club program, and the first thing you're going to get is real game time experience. You don't get that promise at a division level program no matter what. You may not see game time ever. So at, at a club program, if you want to play in a game, 
you're probably most likely going to get that opportunity even from your first year on. You know, so that's a big sell in my mind as a player and, and a coach. You know, I, I would want to play. I, I, I don't care. I just want to play, you know, and I'm hoping to get those kinds of kids. Now, I would assume that, that, that scouts probably rarely show up at club football games. I'm just guessing. Maybe that's not necessarily the case. But I would think that uh, these are probably kids that um, are they interested in a career in football, like, say, as a coach, as you're doing, or, or some other aspect of the game? and that they're using these experiences at the club level to try and, and find out whether or not that's something they really want to explore. You know, it's, it's interesting. You do have – I know I have a few athletes that um, are destined to be coaches, and I, and I, you know, give them props all the time for their critical thinking and the way that they view things and, you know, the, the way they problem solve. And it actually turned out last year that one of our, our players was injured and uh, we decided to give him the reins of, of calling the offensive series when, uh, when our offensive coordinator couldn't do it. And uh, he did a great job, I mean, to the point where I asked him to come back, and he'll probably be working with us this year now that uh, he'll be graduate, but he'll be an assistant coach on staff with us. And, and that's, it, it sounds like the club program does provide kids not only with the experience of playing the game, but also with options that maybe at the D level aren't necessarily there for you. Yeah, there's no question. I think that the the divisional level, it, it's a business. It, you're a product, and if you don't fit on the shelf, you don't get to stay in the store. You know, so when you have something like that, it, you know, there's a lot of high pressure on you as an athlete to to try to outperform everybody and, and really impress your coaches and you know all that kind of stuff. And I think again, you know, it, that pressure is never personalized. No one is there to help take that away. The coaches aren't necessarily your friends, so to speak. You know, and that may not be true for all athletes, but I think that's true for the majority of the team, that they're just another person with a shirt number. And when you have a, a program like ours where you have to have more flexibility in the kids' needs and, 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 you know, the reasons why they might have come out for a program and the flexibility that they're looking for, you know, it, it definitely is a, a – different experience for the athlete no doubt how much I, how uh, go ahead i was just going to say i can't say it's better you know I, I i can't speak for any one individual but i know that you know what i intend to offer those kids is going to be something that makes them come back year to year to play for me and and does it help in, in the recommendation aspect of it when kids are looking for uh, you know, recommendations for whatever they want to do once their their college days at Eastern are over. Um, are those football players and, and even those that may have been associated with you in other ways in regards to this program, uh, are they coming back to you for recommendations to to help them along with uh, what's going to be the next step in their life? Yeah, you know, and they're, and they're, pretty, they're pretty brave to ask sometimes because a lot of times it's like, can you give me a recommendation to Boston University? I, I want to go try it. You know, I'm losing players by giving them recommendations sometimes. But, again, it's part of that knowing your players, you know. I, I, I think that, you know, when, when you can write a personalized letter from your experience, whether it's on the field trying to get to know that kid and, and feel him out or just what you're learning about him and his goals and stuff, it, 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 I think that they, they feel like I'm an approachable kind of coach and that I don't mind doing things for my players. And, and that's the truth. I mean, I don't mind doing things for my players. So if it's writing recommendations that ultimately has them leaving our program and joining some other program, well, if that's what they want, I'm, I'm behind it. I'll do it.
What kind of a fraternity is the club football coaching fraternity? Say that again, I'm sorry? What kind of a fraternity is the club football coaching fraternity? I mean, do you guys share, you know, uh, uh, practice techniques, or do you um, uh, do you have time where where, where the club uh, uh, head coaches kind of get together and, and swap ideas, things like that, or do you pretty much uh, uh, go your own ways? Yeah, I think it's pretty independent of one another. There, there doesn't seem to be any any continuity amongst the coaches as a whole from team to team. I know that uh, the previous head coach had good relationships with a number of teams that, you know, again, I hope to continue those relationships because I, I respect the programs. But in, in any in any sport, you know, you're going to come across, you know, other coaches that you don't agree with and that you don't agree with whether it's their idea or their attitude or whatever. And so it's, it's hard to make connections and, and, you know, and try to share ideas with people that you, you know, you probably would rather keep your ideas to yourself and just be successful against them. But it would seem to me at the club level, if there was continuity uh, among the coaches, it would really help to elevate uh, the club game and make it more visible to those that are are not only involved with the universities, but uh, just to the general public. You know, I I, I agree with you. I think that that to make an entity in which there's a promotional aspect to try to get the club aspect drawn into the communities and let people know that it exists and stuff. And certainly, you know, coaches working together to try to make, you know, every opportunity, you know, better, whether it's finding ways to, you know, put games in situations where we can draw the most amount of crowds. So you maybe make a, a, a you know, a neutral site instead of always a home site, you know. Um, coaching techniques, coaching styles, all that. You know, I certainly know that you can only coach what you know. So I'm always open to learning more things. I, I, you know, in all my years of football, I've never once believed that I've learned everything that I can. So, you know, sharing ideas and, and certainly on collaborative things can be helpful, but you got to realize it, it's a competitive sport too. And sometimes you've got coaches that want to keep their cards very close to their chest because that's important to them. So Even at the club level, you still have coaches yeah. that, that are like that. You know, I, I'll tell you, you know, my, my very first game coaching as defensive coordinator, we didn't know the head coach for the Owen Doggett team. And it turns out he was actually the previous head coach for, I think, St. Thomas More, right? So what I do is I go online and I look at all the stuff that he ran with that college, you know, which was a divisional-level college, you know. But he showed his hand in those films, so I was able to know that he would run the same stuff offensively at this club program, and sure enough, he had the same exact offense, and you know we, we had the lead within two minutes of the end of the game. We 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 failed to seal the deal. We fumbled the ball away. They win the game. They become national champions that year. So wow. you know, it's, yeah, this coach took them you know to where they were going. He he was a really good coach, but it also you know his hand was showed. All I had to know was what he used to run, and I had, I had a great defense set up for it. They only scored two touchdowns. Even even at the club level, modern technology can play a role. I'll tell you, man, you got you got to know your opponent. You have to. So, so how much advanced scouting can you do? You you can't do that much. That's the difficulty. Like you know, huddles become real popular in the high school um, areas, and I, I think that that is really going to bring probably a certain level to the the to the coaching abilities. Um, if the if the club programs all went in that direction and we all had huddle accounts where we could share previous game films and stuff like that, 
um, it's really difficult. If I have to play against Clarkson next week and I'm preparing for Vermont this week, I don't have a, a you know a recruiter I can send to Clarkson's game while we go off and play Vermont. It just doesn't work. You know, so you got to rely on last year's films, for example. You know, um, you know, word of mouth, any kind of highlight clips you can come up with by looking on the internet. Sometimes kids get a little excited about their last game and post stuff. You know, so you just got to really do a lot of research to try to find out who your opponent is. Where do you want to see club football five years from now? You know, ideally, I'd like it to be the point where, you know, there's, there's a media following, you know, and, and you mentioned yourself as far as the, the lack of knowledge about how expansive the sport is right now currently. And I think there's only, you know, maybe 120 teams nationally that, that have club football. Um, and, and so there's room to grow, you know, but it really does come down to, you know, bringing that out there to the people and letting, letting the communities know that football exists. So there's some great, I'm sure, out Midwest, Ohio. I know Ohio has a, has a number of teams that have tremendous followings for club football, you know. So it, it really depends on the region and, and hopefully you know, more word of mouth getting out there, more attention to the, the whole club thing. Hey, I, I win a national championship with Eastern football. Right, Connecticut will know about it. But the flip side of that would be if you did get more media coverage, if you did get more people to show up in the stands to watch these games, wouldn't the expenses of the program go up? And maybe that's something that the universities really don't want to have happen. You know, I, 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 can't, I, I can't say how the, the university itself would, would look at that. I think that um, from my understanding, they don't really give a lot of regard to, to the club football itself. They fund it out of the student activities. They're happy to do it. Um, but as far as, you know, the potential for anything that any one club could bring to the university, I don't think they view it as an opportunity there. Um, you know, more people in the stands, if you're charging a, a, a per ticket, you know, that's, that's more money at the, at the box. So, you know, obviously the support is what's, what's necessary, you know. Um, funding it is important, you know, but the support is what's necessary to, to move any team in the right direction, whether it's just simply feeling good about being on the sidelines and being a part of a game that's tough because you've got support behind you cheering you on. That, that's worth millions of dollars sometimes. So how difficult or how often can you get out into the town itself where the university is located and promote what you're doing? Um, well, once the winter breaks and we get the snow <laughs> on, um, I, I coach track two for, for the high school, and uh, I think that that will be my, my route. I think I'll spend a lot of time in the east here going to the high school track meets and stuff like that. There's a lot of crossover for football athletes and, and coaches, They you know, a lot of Football coaches also coach track. Um, so I'll spend a lot of time at track meets and, and trying to get out there that way. Um, and then meeting individually with whatever coach I can, you know, get to maybe have, you know, any athlete that's been overlooked, that, that didn't get recruited, didn't get an, an invite anywhere, that still wants to play. I want to know, you know, if he's interested in coming to Eastern. It sounds like you have a program that's in pretty good shape. It also sounds like you have a, an idea of how you want to run it. Um, do you think you can run this program the way you want to, given the limited budget and, and the limited situation that you, you're now involved in? You know, I, I think I can. In, in the limited budget, for me, is not an issue. Um, you know, I've worked with limited budgets, you know, for years. We, we, you know, my head coach at the high right. school was, 
know, great for having equipment that I used to use 30 years ago and, and when I was in high school. So, you know, keeping things in good shape and, and, you know, keeping what you have keeps you from having to spend it. So if we can, you know, build every year a little bit into the program, I think I'll be happy with that pace. Um, I certainly have my agenda to, you know, cap out a 55-man roster, the most we're allowed, you know, and, and to, you know, win more games than we lose and put pressure on other teams. And I think that as we do that, then, again, that support, you know, we'll have kids knowing that there's club football at Eastern. We'll have kids wanting to come and play at Eastern. You know, it'll be something. A lot of kids come to Eastern just to play for baseball. It's a divisional-level program. We want the same kind of attitude. You know, we want kids to come because, you know, what we offer is something that they want. Do you find with the club programs that you play against that the attitude that you possess is the attitude that these other coaches that you go up against also have? No, not at all. <laughs> really? You know, and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a competitor, and, you know, and, and so are the other coaches. And, you know, it, 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 everybody has a different philosophy, you know. And, and so there's, there's, there's certainly groups of coaches out there that are simply there to, you know, play football on game day and not worry about anything else that surrounds it. And so, you know, you do have concerns with, you know, we had a, a, a team, they had 19 ineligible players playing the game against us. And they knew about it, you know. So, is there an ethical thing? There, there's a major shortcoming when it comes to ethical things with coaches and stuff like that. That that can make things, you know, trying on you. And so, rules are something that really also needs to be adopted at, at even at the club level. Yeah. Well, to be right, I think that the the club would have to have a, a you know an overseeing body, not, for example, like we make our own charter and we come up with our own rules based on the university. It, it, to really have, for example, you know, the NCAA, not to use that as the model, but the idea and the concept where you have a ruling body that has a set of rules. One, one conference has one set of rules where those players are considered ineligible, and I think it was a great thing, um, whereas, you know, the other conference had no problem with that. You know, it wasn't a forfeit in one conference, it was a forfeit in another. And that kind of, you know, breakdown just shows the shortcomings that, that the club as a national thing has to overcome still. And that goes back to what I said about where you'd like club football to be five years from now. It would seem to be an umbrella of, of rules and, and, and the way that you want uh, the entire process to be run seems to be, I would think, a, a top priority if, in fact, you want to make club football more than it may be right now. The first goal is to make Eastern club football more than it is right now, and, and I'm sure through that and through the responsibilities of dealing with the conferences and, and other things that, you know, I'll share my opinions, and, you know, the difficulty is, you, you know, you're dealing with an entity that may not have the same motivations, you know, may not see the need to move in, in a direction of more continuity of rule and things like that. So, it, you know, I'm not out to change the world. You know, I, I want to coach football. That's what I love to do. And, you know, at Eastern, I have that opportunity. So I'll make but let's that face it, Coach, you want to make it a fair playing field. It, yeah. everything, everything in my mind is geared towards a, a, a fair playing field, no doubt about it. Um, okay. But, again, there's, there's always going to be that, that difference of talent. You know, when you have a two-year college that's meant to be set up as a segue to a divisional-level athlete, and then you have a club football program like, like ours that doesn't get that level, there's always going to be an imbalance in talent. That you can take, 
but as long as the rules are the same for everybody and the, and the expectations of the, the grades and, and the reason why they're in school to start with, if we can come up with that, you know, just those kinds of parameters to make it level playing field, then talent aside, talent is what it is. Good for them, talent's important. Coach, it, 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 look, I, I love to, having this conversation with you. I, I wish we could go on longer, but uh, I, I, I do want to have, have you come back again because I do think this is a fascinating conversation. Oh, man, I'd, I'd love to talk again. It's a nice time, definitely. Thank you, Coach. Uh, I'll turn it back to Josh and Montel and, and let them uh, finish this out with you. All right, John, thank you. Hey, yes, sir. Hey, Coach Dowdy, again, I, we just want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your evening to come on and basically give us the rundown on, on what's going on in, you know, uh, in the club football world uh, at the university level. Uh, I, to be honest, had no clue that there was even uh, club football uh, at the university level. So thank you uh, for enlightening us on such a topic that, well, to be honest, and John and you have just killed it, uh, nobody knew. That's excellent. You know, again, you know, I might not be the, the guy to bring it out to the world, but I'm certainly happy to spread the word. <laughs> hey, well, we appreciate it. Again, thank you very much, and have yourself a good rest of your evening, and you are welcome back anytime. Hey, anytime you guys want me, just let me know. Yeah, thanks for joining again. We really appreciate it. All right, guys, you have a nice night. You too, Coach. Yeah, you too, thank you. All right, folks, and that was Coach Dowdy out of Eastern Connecticut State talking about his club football program. Uh, we are now hit the bottom of the hour, a little bit over the bottom of the hour. Uh, you are listening to the NGSE Sports Weekly Radio Show on NGSEsports.com, powered by iHeartRadio. When we come back, uh, we're going to review, if you were listening last week, to our fantasy brackets, so to speak. Make sure you put the quotations there, folks. Uh, and, John, when we come back from the break, uh, UCLA? That's all I got. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let you think about that one. Again, we'll be right after this break. second hour of the weekly show. John, I told you I had a surprise for you at the beginning when we were in the pre-show, and yes, I told the, you, I gave you a little bit of a hint that it was going to be based on your location. Yes, uh, the, the, I, the group Boston. Yes, very good. Very well done. You do have a future <laughs> as an oldies disc jockey. Hey, you know what? Hey, we got to make everybody happy. You know, me and Montel, we're, you know, a young generation. John, 
sometimes you might not hear some of our music, but hey, the oldies are great, so we got to keep on. We got to keep throwing them on. Uh, as we wait for Coach Dennehy, uh the Merrimack hockey coach, uh, I, I think now, John, would be a good time for you to kind of let out your frustration on the fact that the UCLA Bruins. Oh, they got a break. Good grief. How'd they get a break? Well, look, that that first game against SMU, I've never seen a game decided by a game-ending goal-tending call. I don't know about Montel, but I've never seen that before. Huge break. And and you look at the angles, and you're like, really? Like, like, I just, you know, I'm sorry. I just feel like, you know, it it was – I don't think you make that call then like that, and it just – it was bad, you know, and it was bad. And then you saw who they played next, right? I mean, what a joke. They were also coming off of a, a huge upset, right? They played UAB, and, and they were just better athletes than them. You know, all that yeah. was was athleticism. All that was was athleticism, beating them up and but, down the court, missing all that But I think, Montel, you would agree that the UCLA dream comes to an end when they meet Gonzaga. It's got to. If the world yeah. is fair, it's got to. Because that's, a, <laughs> that's, an actual, that's an actual ball club. Like, they have an offense. They're athletic enough. Uh, the game plan. I mean, that's an actual ball club. That'll be the only team that they've seen this tournament that that can that can really you know play. And so, um, it's got to happen. Now, I, I have to ask, based on the, the the picks that we made last week, which were for sixty four games, we didn't include the playing games. How how well did we actually do? Well, and I'm actually going to get into that. Well, right now, oh, okay. uh, in terms of points, we're at 410, according to the ESPN Tournament Challenge. So not bad. We're sitting at roughly 50%. Uh, John, you didn't do too bad in your uh, in your part of the first section of the bracket. You picked Kentucky. You picked Cincinnati. You didn't pick West Virginia. You went, with, uh, you went with Buffalo on that one. You did pick Maryland. You picked Texas. Uh, that hurts us. Um, yeah. you, you picked Northeastern, which you were looking like you were a genius uh, for a majority of the game. Zach Stahl was course, wide open underneath that basket. All they had to do was find them, and they play overtime. That was a, yep. that was a pity. Yep. And then, of course, yep. you picked Wichita State and Kansas. So you didn't do bad the first round. Uh, Montel, you didn't do bad, uh, you didn't do bad yourself. Uh, you picked Wisconsin over Scott who okay. I say, and I will continue to say, have the coolest mascot in all of NCAA. <laughs> I don't care who you are right there. When your mascot is named the Fighting Chance, uh, you might as well just pick them just because it's a sweet nickname. Uh, you, you picked Oklahoma State over Oregon. Uh, they ended up losing a six-point game. Uh, but you did pick Wisconsin to go to the Sweet 16, so you're sitting okay there. Uh, you picked Arkansas. You picked North Carolina. You did pick Xavier. And I, I know you, you didn't even think this one was going to happen, and I didn't either because I picked it in all my brackets. But Georgia State upset in Baylor. That one hurt us. And then, of course, you were right with Ohio State and Arizona. Uh, going over to my side of the bracket, I didn't do too bad myself. Uh, the, I tell you, my way of picking actually went well. Uh, Villanova won. Uh, I was upset with, you know, NC State. I was surprised that they, they came back to win that game. Uh, both Northern Iowa and Louisville won. Uh, Providence shocked me. Uh, I mean, they were beat by Dayton, uh, Hanley, Oklahoma, Michigan State, and Virginia all win. And then, of course, in the bottom side of our bracket, 
Uh, we missed two games with Stephen F. Austin and Iowa State. Who, but I tell you one thing, and we talked about it before, the UCLA Bruins, man, you can't pick against the Bear. And apparently, I mean, I know the Baylor Bears lost, but they're called the Batlin Bears. Uh, you know, these guys are called the Mighty Bruins, so it's obviously a better name, uh, which is so why they actually, moved. Actually, if, if I'm to understand everything you just said, our Sweet 16 looks pretty good. Yes, our Sweet 16 does. Uh, we've missed. Uh, we missed Villanova. We missed Northern Iowa. Uh, we did pick Oklahoma. We picked Michigan State. Uh, Stephen F. Austin was the team that we had going to the Sweet 16, and instead that's Utah. UCLA, Gonzaga. Uh, on the bottom and Duke, side. And, and Duke's in there, too. Yep, yep, yeah. We have yep, Duke and Utah. Uh, right. And then So, actually, course, our Final Four is still intact as well. Yes, it is. As of right now, our Final Four is still intact. Uh, Michigan State, Duke, Wichita State, and Wisconsin. Of That's course. crazy. That is crazy. That, that is crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I know. But you know what? It, it makes for it makes for some fun. But you know, going into it now, uh, I mean, we can't repick our bracket. But no, no. If we were going to. Here is kind of how we would do it. Uh, starting with the Sweet 16, Kentucky over West Virginia. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's unanimous with everybody that Kentucky would move on. Well, that plus the fact that West Virginia is providing Kentucky with bulletin board material, which is really stupid when you're going up against a 30-plus uh, win team that's undefeated. Yep, you don't provide them with more incentive to kick your butt. 30, yeah, 36-0, 36 and, 0. and as Montel mentioned in the update, uh, they're going to apparently be 36-1. and 1. So I guess we'll have to keep an eye on that one. But the big one uh, out of that West section, Notre Dame and Wichita State. Uh, just for the listeners out there who are just now tuning in, uh, we did pick Wichita State to be in the Elite Eight. But, John, if we were to re-pick this, would you still feel comfortable with Wichita State? Yes, I would. There you because have. they've so got guards. I mean, they oh, have yeah. guards, and, and I think Notre Dame's lack of size is eventually going to catch them. Yeah, and they, they, they struggled. They almost gave that first-round game away, John. I mean, they, yep. they had to be on pins and needles when I was watching that game. And, and you know what? The uh, Butler game, they, they weren't yeah. much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you, you watch some of these teams that struggle to defend. You know, you, you see it. Iowa State, you know, what, what do you – are you kidding me? You know, and mm. I, I talked to someone just the other day, and I said, you know, this is why, this is why you know, some of these rankings bother me because you can't watch that loss and say that they were still what? The, they are still deserving of their seeding or that they were, you know, the, the 10th best team in college basketball. You, you know, you, you, you hurt teams like that, like, like what they faced in UAB, and, and, and you defend. That's, that's what you do when you're among the best in the nation, and I didn't see a lot of that. And, uh, but when you look at, Wichita State, you know, I love them to death. Van Bleet was just sensational that last game, uh, nearly 20 first-half points, uh, a little slower in the second half, but still very good. He just knows how to leave his mark on a ball game, and he just he, he's just been money for them since day one. Let's face it, it was a bad weekend for the Big 12. I mean, they really took it on the chin. It was a great weekend on the other side of it for the ACC and for the Pac-12, and I think for the oh, Pac-12, yeah. that was a bit surprising. 
Yeah, I, I didn't see that coming by sight, especially UCLA, and uh, they had a couple other games they pulled out. Oregon almost gave uh, Wisconsin a scare, so absolutely. Uh, but Big 12, I mean, they, they came right. Everyone's saying going into the tournament, this is, uh, you know, the, the best uh, conference in college basketball, but I'm I'm not sold. <laughs> I'm not sold after that show. And wow. Montel, and, now, now we get down to your bracket, Montel. Uh, your Sweet 16 Wisconsin, UNC, who you had Arkansas actually playing Wisconsin, so we we did miss that. And then Xavier, Arizona, for that first game, Wisconsin, North Carolina, do you still feel comfortable that Wisconsin is going to win that game? Yeah. Absolutely, Frank. I mean, that front line is tough. You know, they got Frank Kaminsky, you know, they went on, you know, they got Nigel uh, Pays. They'll be fine. Uh, This is a team that's been resilient. That's played with discipline uh, and, and power inside, and, and that's you know, like I said before, I, I didn't fill out my true bracket the way I should have, but it's really about defense and, and it's really about rebounding because on these stages, you know, your shot's gonna be fluky, players are gonna be nervous, uh, and then they're gonna be playing you know games uh, you know within weeks of each other, a really short time. They're gonna see a lot of new defenses, a lot of new things, and then they got their nerves to overcome. So. Defense is just so incredible, and, and I, I like Wisconsin moving forward. And like I said before, if only I made my true bracket this way, maybe I'd actually care about my true bracket. But, yeah. <laughs> and, and then we go down we go down to your second game, Xavier-Arizona. Uh, we, we all thought Baylor was going to be the team uh, to be in the Sweet 16, and, and they were knocked out uh, by Georgia State uh, pretty early on, uh, the one-point game. But – had a pretty convincing win over Georgia State to get into the Sweet 16, Xavier did. But does Arizona still potentially have the best front five, uh, you know, best starting five in, in the entire tournament? I, I think – I can't say the best starting five, but that's that's a great lineup they've got there. I think – in all seriousness, I think Kentucky has the best starting five. They, they have the best starting ten, in my opinion, but yeah. – uh, but you look at Arizona State uh, and the things they've been able to do, uh, that's another team, you know, uh, with their length. Some of the things they're able to do, uh, you know, they played, uh, you know, a very solid game last weekend. And some of the things I was able to see for them is just, uh, you know, you know, they, A, won the games they're supposed to win, which is just not a given. And, and, and secondly, uh, their length, you know, you can tell right away um, they're going to make – you know, certain shots that you pass to get open, they're going to take away some of those uh, shooting lanes because just, they're just able to rotate quick enough to get there. So uh, that's a team that's, that's going to be productive, and, and, and I think they'll they'll see a, a Elite Eight appearance, and I, I can't wait to see them face off against the Wisconsin Badgers. That's that's really the matchup I'm looking forward to. So there, there we have it. For the West, excuse me, John, yours was the Midwest. For the West, we have Wisconsin, Arizona, in the Elite Eight. Moving over to my side of the bracket, I'm going to let you guys continue to use your basketball IQ and knowledge with me. Uh, I I missed on a couple of them, uh, and so that's going to be that. Uh, First one, NC State Louisville. Uh, We didn't have either of these teams going in. We had Northern Iowa going to the Elite Eight, uh, and we had Louisville losing to Northern Iowa, and then, of course, we had Villanova beating NC State. Going into this game, since we don't have a, a pick into the Elite Eight, John, out of that game, who's going to make the trip to the Elite Eight? 
I'll tell you what. I mean, that's an ACC matchup. Um, for Mark Godfrey to North Carolina State, that win over Villanova was a signature win. I mean, they played as well as they have played all year in that game against Villanova. Can they do it twice in a row against a team that they have some familiarity with? You know, Louisville, although they beat Northern Iowa, they did struggle for stretches of that game. Um, I just think that, you know, Terry Rozier is a terrific guard for Louisville, and, and um, Louisville's got some size up front that State's going to have some issues with. But again, the familiarity that these teams possess against each other make it a fascinating matchup. I'll, I would take Louisville. Montel, where are you going with it? You got Louisville as well? Uh, which matchup is this? I'm sorry. Louisville, NC State. Uh, the top game of the East. Yeah, no, this is this is going to be fun. This is going to be a fun game to watch. Uh, when it comes down to it, uh, you you got to give me Louisville. I, I just don't see a way around it. Uh, you know, we all tried to pick these upsets, man, but other than maybe NC State and maybe Xavier, everyone here belongs, <laughs> you know, and and this is going to be a better matchup than I think people are going to give credit to it. But uh, give me, give me Louisville in a in a tight one, uh, and and it's it's going to be a good game. Like I said, don't don't sleep on this game. This one could be an overtime. I like that. So we got Louisville punched their ticket in for the first one. Uh, we were right on this one. Uh, Oklahoma, Michigan State. Granted, we had Oklahoma playing Providence, but they win nonetheless. Uh, Montel, as you mentioned last week. Izzo's that dude, man. Like, they can have a, a mediocre season throughout the Big Ten, but once the NCAA tournament rolls around, uh, they seem to always be firing on all cylinders. We have them going to the Elite Eight. Do you still feel confident that they're going to beat Oklahoma? Wait, which uh, – who's playing Oklahoma? I'm sorry. I'm trying. I'm looking at my own bracket. Then I'm listening to what you have to say, and I'm like, wait a minute. My, 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 I'm just so uh, so messed up here. You, you, you know how poorly my bracket is doing. I'm sorry. Uh, but Oklahoma, it goes – Oklahoma, yeah. Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State, the seven, Oklahoma, the three we picked uh, last week. Michigan State going to the Elite Eight, do you still mm-hmm. feel confident with that pick? Uh, yeah, you know, Michigan State, and, and they rolled over Virginia. Virginia is who I really had actually doing something, but they obviously fell short. But, uh, you know, the time is, coaches this team up so well. And, and uh, you know, especially, you know, in that game against Virginia, I really feel like the play of Travis Trice was just electric. I mean, he had like 23, 24 points. Uh, that might be, you know, one of the better performances he's had all season. So if he can get his guys to play like that, if he's got a guard, you know, you have great guards, you can go as far as you want to go in this tournament. And uh, Travis Trice, that senior guard, is really leading that team down the stretch. And, you know, if he can show up against this game against Oklahoma, I mean, you know, it's just Big 12 basketball versus Big 10. So, you know, <laughs> you look at it that way, I think Michigan State might roll in this one. I think that one might be uh, a win by maybe a wider margin than you expect. I don't know if Oklahoma is, is going to be there with them uh, to the end. John. Oh, I like Michigan, Michigan State. State. I think Izzo's toughness is, is really starting to show through. As Montel said, Travis Trice is playing awfully well. I just think Michigan State's a tougher team, and they'll find a way to get there. Interesting. So we have Louisville versus Michigan State. And then, of course, heading down to the bottom, uh, John, I, I already, we're going to just immediately go to this game. I already know who you're picking. Uh, you're going to pick Gonzaga over UCLA. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> 
Montel, uh, you, made the same, you made the same argument with him earlier when I was trying to give you guys a hard time about UCLA. Are you going to stick with the Zags, keeping up and going to the Elite Eight uh, with our pick? Um, yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, it's, I already said uh, UCLA's athleticism is what got them here. And I think uh, Gonzaga, technically, they're not as long as UCLA. They're not as big, but they're close enough. And I think they're good enough basketball players to win this game. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, they might not pull away the way we like because uh, we, we all know UCLA is a little overwhelmed here. But uh, this will be one of those teams that I don't think they're big and strong enough to just to just outman them tonight uh, that night. I think it's going to be a, a, a solid win. It's a solid win for uh, uh, Gonzaga when they play these guys. Oh, well, just because I like to do it, I'm going to play devil's advocate, and I'm going to say that UCLA wins. So, But it's 2-1. to one. Gonzaga moves on, uh, which goes along with our picks that we made last week. Duke-Utah, uh, assumingly the number one – the number one seed in the South, I do not see them having a problem. Uh, Julio Okafor is, you know, like I mentioned last week, uh, easily one of the best players in the entire country, if not the best player in the country. Uh, I think Duke is going to steamroll in this one. Uh, and then, in fact, uh, the Utes are a Blue Devil. I'm picking the Blue Devil in that fight. Uh, but, John, who's winning this one? Oh, I, I, if we, I would take Duke over Utah and then eventually take Duke over Gonzaga to get to the Final Four. Montel, you rolling with that as well? Absolutely. I mean, just no doubt, no doubt at all. I, I, I like that. So, I mean, we so we actually made it right on that one. Uh, Duke versus Gonzaga. Uh, and hell, why not? We'll, we'll stay with the Elite Eight. Uh, you guys have both said that they're going to go to the Final Four, so we will go up to the East. Louisville. Right, if I remember correctly, because uh, I'm not writing these down, uh, Louisville versus Michigan State. Who's winning this matchup? Well, I tell you what, this could be a bloodbath. Um, <laughs> seriously, I, I, this could easily be a bloodbath uh, because I think that's the way Izzo would want to play this game. That he'd want to play it as 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 rough and tumble as he possibly could, turn it into a, a street fight if necessary. I think that would be his best chance. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've got Michigan State going to the Final Four, so um, I, I, I mean, I'd stick with Izzo just because of, of the toughness that he brings and the toughness that that team brings at this time of the year. Um, if if Louisville is going to beat Michigan State, they're going to have to be willing to fight, and there are times when Louisville will go out there and just not be willing to fight. Montel, are we riding with Sparty on this one, or... Are you going to pick the birds? Oh, man. This is hard. Uh, you know, give me Sparty in this one. Uh, I think when it comes down the stretch, it's just going to come down to the experience uh, and the key roles and the key positions. And I think Michigan State's just a little bit older than they are. Uh, they've been here a little bit more, uh, so I like them. Okay, so we got – one final four complete. Uh, it'll be Michigan State versus Duke. Swinging it over to the other side. Uh, I know this is a little bit of a crazy pick. Uh, I'm assuming that when she made this pick, she might have been uh, drinking some wine, but our own Jamie Council picked Kentucky over Wichita State. 
obviously a <laughs> huge upset. That'd be the upset of the year if it were to happen. We you can't mean Wichita change. State over Kentucky? Or do you mean yes. Kentucky over Wichita? Okay, there you go. All right. Um, but okay. Montel, are you gonna are you gonna pick the Wildcat? Are you gonna stay with the Wildcats on this one? Ah oh, man, you know Calipari's got one of the best teams I've ever seen. He always, uh, I mean, you know, he says we don't rebuild, we reload, and that's just what they've done. I mean, they go ten deep. I, I, I could coach these guys to a win, man. <laughs> you know, Calipari. I mean, uh, in all seriousness, he can't. He can't find a way. If you lose in the tournament, it's okay. You can't find a way to lose to a far less athletic Wichita State team. You can't do it. Uh, I'd love to see it. This is why I watch March Madness. But Kentucky's got to win in this one. They've got to roll. Uh, one thing I do see is that sometimes they're, you know. I don't want to say lackadaisical, but sometimes they think they can cruise through some games, and it doesn't hit them to maybe there's five minutes left in the second half that, hey, uh, we got to go out here and earn this. So uh, they're going to have to earn this one. It's going to be close, uh, maybe four minutes left, three minutes left, and they pull away a little bit. Uh, maybe they don't pull away at all and just kind of win it by four on some foul shots. But uh, Kentucky's got to win this game, and if they don't, I, I think they take themselves out of it. Uh, no disrespect to Wichita State. It's a very good team. they come very far, but they just uh, – uh, they're just going to be a little short. And it's okay because they just can't go 10 deep. You know, their bench cannot play with Kentucky's. I mean, it's just – it's not fair. <laughs> you know, it's really not. John. The irony here is unbelievable. I mean, think about it. A year ago, the roles were reversed. Third round of the tournament, it was Wichita State that was undefeated, and it was Kentucky that had the opportunity to knock them off, which they did. Now, one year later, the roles are now reversed. Kentucky's the undefeated squad, and Wichita State is the one that's trying to knock them off. Uh, I find that very interesting. I have no doubts that uh, uh, you know, Coach Greg Marshall and that group have, uh, if they get the opportunity to look forward to this game, I think that they will just lay it all out on the floor and try and revenge uh, what happened to them a year ago in the third round. Do they have enough to do it? Probably not. But I think that uh, if Kentucky is going to stumble and bumble at, at some point in this tournament, I think this would be the game that they stumble and bumble in. I think Wichita State has a chance to pull this off. Not a great chance, but a chance. Uh, you know what? If, if Van Bleef and, and Baker can shoot lights out, I'll give Wichita State a nod. But it's going to be, a, I think, one of those last-second buzzer beaters that gets it done. So... You're going with Wichita State. Yep, I, yep. That's that's going to be the one that I think will uh, send the shockwaves. <laughs> oh, there we go. And then, of course, in our final Elite Eight, uh, Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, Montel. We we going to ride with Wisconsin with this one? Uh, yeah, we got to, you know, I've got a good friend that loves Arizona and loves the way they play and everything about them, you know, but in all seriousness, uh, you know, I'm sold on Wisconsin. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a team that can defend. There's a team that's uh, just, they, they've won some of the tough games already. I think Arizona might not have been as tested in this tournament. They've cruised a little bit. And I think they're really, really going to get tested on this day. And uh, I just, I don't know. I think if it comes down to it, they they might just, uh, they they might just have to take this L. I think, I think you got to roll Wisconsin. Yeah, I go with Wisconsin as well. I think their toughness is something that Arizona hasn't faced yet, and I don't think they can handle. Well, there we have it, folks. Uh, our final four is set. Uh, when we come back from this 
NGSC Sports update, we will preview our final four matchups. Montel, take it away. Thanks, Josh. I'm Montel Hardy, and this is an NGSC Sports News Rank. Uh, as always, you can listen to us live on NGSCSports.com. Just click on the red talk shoe box, and you can listen to us live. In the news now, the Los Angeles Lakers made history in tonight's game against the Oklahoma City Thunder. The duo of Jordan Clarkson and, Nia, and uh, Jeremy Lin became the first ever Asian-American starting backcourt in the NBA. Uh, as I said earlier, West Virginia's guard, Daxter Miles, told the Cleveland sports reporters, quote, I give them their props. I, I salute them for going 36-0, and but tomorrow they're going to be 36-1. and that was uh, West Virginia Mountaineer guard Daxon Miles on the University of Kentucky Wildcats that they'll play uh, later this week. Uh, you know, that might be an upset on the horizon, guys, so, you know, look out for that. And then finally, uh, as always, nearly 10 months uh, after the, you know, nearly 10 months after diagnosis, uh, Leah Still was now uh, cancer-free, according to a report by ESPN. Uh, doctors informed her and her father, Cincinnati Bengals defensive tackle, Devon Still, that she is officially in remission. Uh, also, guys, be sure to check out the NGSC Sports, uh, hottest stories we got going on right here on NGSCSports.com. Thursday night, March Madness preview and Yami Yager's place in NHL history, written by our own Twan Stanley. And then finally, Kevin Durant, why Durant to the Knicks makes sense by our own G. Stelio. Uh, just a reminder, you can check out all these stories and so much more on NGSCSports.com. Thank you all for listening to the NGSC Sports weekly flagship show on the, on NGSC Sports Radio. It's available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and iTunes. I'm Montel Hardy. Back to you, Josh. Hey, thanks, man. And then, of course, uh, he ain't going to give himself his own sugar, but make sure you guys go out there and read uh, Mr. Montel Hardy's scouting report on Amari Cooper. Uh, I tell you what, folks, this dude knows what he's talking about, so go out there and read it. Um, we are being joined now by our NHL analyst, Jamie Council. Jamie, thank you for joining us this evening. No problem. No problem. Good to be here. And, Jamie, before we get into our NHL and Frozen Four talk, we are going to continue to review our final bracket. Uh, this is basically going to probably be the final time we get a chance to really talk about it in depth. Uh, we have made it to the Final Four. Your pick of Wichita State has stood. John picked them in our repick to beat Kentucky, and I'm going to side with him on that one just because I like to see the upset. So yeah. going into the first one, Montel, Wichita State, Wisconsin. Are we going on Wisconsin with this one again? Are we taking it all the way? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough one. Uh now, you know, yeah, I'm sold on Wisconsin. I'm gonna roll with them. I'm gonna ride that train till the wheels fall off, and we're gonna we're gonna see where we end up. John on Wisconsin. Yeah, I agree. I think that Wichita State uh, to get through do, uh, to get through Kentucky would be a monumental effort. I I think it would be very hard for them to be able to uh, to match that performance against a team that's as physical as Wisconsin is. So yeah, I I would ride Wisconsin to uh, the championship game. Hey, there we go. And finally, Jamie, on Wisconsin. Are we taking Wisconsin with this one, or are you going to pick the upset? I'm going to take Wisconsin. I'm going to stick by it. There we go, Wisconsin into the national championship game. And then, of course, 
the one that we all predicted in the beginning, Michigan State, the Spartans versus the Blue Devils of Duke. Coach K versus that dude, Tom Izzo. We have Duke playing in the national championship game in our bracket. Montel, who are you picking? Uh, give me Duke. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, if everything that's been said is true, if if this guy is going to be as famous he is for you know uh, the coaching players through adversity, then let's let's go ahead and, and put Coach K on the chair here. You know, let's put him let's put him on the couch here. Should I say? You know, he we all know what's going on at Duke. We all know the, the stories that broke. Uh, he's he's been able to keep his guys focused. Tune out the noise. He also has one of the best players in college basketball on his team. Uh, I think his system is gonna. It, it, I think you know. I think it's gonna be a good game. But I think Duke will stun them. I think Duke will stun Michigan State, and I think it might not be as close as maybe we picture it now. John, are we? Going I think it's to a matchup of of. of of toughness versus talent. I think Michigan State's got the toughness. I think Duke has the talent. I think the talent wins out. Ooh. So we're two for Duke so far. Jamie, who are you picking? Sparty or the Blue Devils? Oh, John put it so good, but I, I do like a good story, though, you know. Um, so I, I'm going to have to go Duke. You know, I'm going to go... Michigan State, and the only reason I'm going Michigan State is, number one, that would be the upset, and that would be the run, the fact that they were the number seven seed uh, in the East to make it to the national championship game. And then, of course, as Montel pointed out last week and also earlier in this preview, it's Tom Izzo. Uh, Yeah, he's playing against Coach K and probably the best player in the country in Jaleel Okafor, who undoubtedly is going to be making millions of dollars uh, come June, but... Tom Izzo knows how to rally his guys. And, John, you said it best in the, in the Louisville matchup. That could be a bloodbath. Uh, I really do think that this game could be the bloodbath. Uh, yeah, but I just don't that, see Michigan State surviving two bloodbaths. I think that's the problem. Well, they're, yep, they're yep. nicknamed Sparty for a reason. Uh, they're known for fighting the bloodbath. <laughs> uh, just to kind of throw a little bit of a historical knowledge there. Uh but, no, 3-1, uh, Duke goes on. So we have Wisconsin versus Duke in the national championship game. We unanimously picked it last week that Wisconsin would win. We're going to go around one last time real quick to see if our picks are going to stay the same. Montel, Duke, Wisconsin, who are you taking? Wisconsin. I think they're the only team that has the length to match up. John. It's a great matchup individually. The player of the year, Frank Kaminsky, against the, the freshman of the year and Juliet Okafor. If, if, Josh, you're right, that Duke has to go through a bloodbath with Michigan State to get to Wisconsin, that might be the reason why Wisconsin wins. And, all right, I'll, I'll take badges with this one, but uh, uh, it would be based on how that semifinal game went. Yeah. And that's going to be the tall task. Uh, yeah. Jamie, Wisconsin versus Duke. You know, John makes a really good point that because uh, Duke will have to undergo – I mean, I, I, I picked Wisconsin last week 
and uh, probably I'm still going to stay with that pick, but I think that that the game before that is really going to go into it. So, um, so I mean, I'm sticking with Wisconsin, but that's just an even further reason to uh, to pick them again if that's if that's a thing. But uh, that was a really good point that he made. So since all you guys have picked Wisconsin, Montel, you know who you, you know who I'm immediately going to pick. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Duke, uh, and the reason that being is battle tested. Uh, if they have to go to the against Michigan State, that means they're gonna be battle tested uh, heading into the game against Wisconsin. And John, you mentioned it you mentioned it very well. Player of the year versus freshman of the year. Uh, if this isn't a more hyped up matchup than it was when it was Wiggins versus Parker last year when Kansas and North Carolina met up earlier in the season, I don't know what is. Um, I like Jalil Okafor as a player. I think he's physical. I think he has all the tools to be a great NBA player. And then, of course, Coach K. Uh, you can never bet against Coach K. Uh, I'm going to pick Duke just for the sake of being devil's advocate. Uh, but, again, 3-1, to one, Wisconsin wins on Wisconsin 2015 NCAA National Champions in our bracket. Uh, hopefully it plays out that way because, like I said earlier, we're not doing too bad with our picks. Uh, we're actually sitting pretty good. Like I said, we're sit- sitting in the 50th percentile. Uh, but that's enough NCAA basketball talk. I now turn the floor over to our NHL analyst in all things hockey, Jamie Council. Jamie, take it away. Well, where are we going to start? Are we going to start with uh, NCAA hockey? Or are we going to start with NHL? Feel free to go wherever you'd like. Uh, just for the sake of keeping it, let's go NCAA hockey. All righty. Well, uh, John's been – I know John's rearing to go here, um, taking it through. And North Dakota, I'm a big UND person, John. Um, so I – I uh, that's – that's kind of who I have, but what do you uh, what do you think going into this, John? Well, I do have BU going to the Garden. I think they've got the best the best player in the country in Jack Eichel. I think they've got the best first line in the country in Jack Eichel, uh, Danny O'Regan, and Evan Rodriguez. Uh, and I just think that uh, uh, they're a hockey team that at the moment uh, is uh, they've really got it set up for themselves. Even though they're in a region uh, that uh, includes uh, Minnesota and Minnesota Duluth. Uh, I think that uh, you know BU Minnesota for the regional final would be a very interesting game in Manchester on Saturday. But I think that BU does get back to the Garden, and if they get to the Garden, based on the familiarity that they have with that rink, having already played four games in there, two games in the Bean Pot, two games in the hockey semifinals and finals, I think that they would be the the favorite to come out of there with a national championship. Yeah, but the Big Ten. Uh... You know, Big Ten had a horrible record that year, so it kind of it's kind of hard to say to say that. But this is why I think UND, like just just hearing them talk, um, you know, they've never had a good UND has never had a good first half of the season on, um, you know, under Coach Haskell. You know, he's uh, he's really kind of taken it over this year and. I don't know, just here, like, there's so much hype. And then, of course, uh, we all remember what happened last year. John? Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Look, uh, 
Uh, you know, Lots when you talk about lost. Boston University, you're talking about a team that really is top-heavy in one line. I mean, there's no question about it. Eichel, O'Regan, Rodriguez, that really is what makes that offense go. In the 19 full games that they played together, they have uh, uh, accounted for 100 points, 37 goals, 63 assists. Eichel leads the country in scoring with 66 points by himself and in all likelihood is the Hobie Baker Award winner when that weekend arrives. So this is a team that really is top-heavy. There's no question about it. If Boston University is going to win a national championship, they're going to have to find a way to get secondary scoring from that second and third lines, and that hasn't always been the case this year, despite the record of 25-7-5. So how Coach Danny Quinn uh, maneuvers that first line, does he break them up, does he keep them together throughout the tournament, I think is a key as to how far they can potentially go. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true, but I, I don't know. I think just being from UND and watching them and just the strongest league, you look at the strength of the league, you know, uh, you know, with the NCHC, they, they're owning it this year. So they're kind of prepared, and I feel like other teams aren't as prepared as they've been playing. And, and like you said, they might be heavy on one line, but, Oh, I, I don't think there's any question they're heavy on one line. I, I think that has been. But let, let's face it, that's how BU has survived this year. It's been the one line. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... So uh, who gets there with them? So if, if we're, we're convinced that BU and North Dakota is, uh, are two of the teams that get to the Frozen Four, who are the other two? You know, that's kind of... Uh, I, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard some talks and... You know, it's hard to tell with the Big Ten uh, just because they have not that good of a league that I, you know, I, I pay attention every once in a while, and I know some people are thinking Minnesota is really better than they are, but they're not, they're not, uh, they're not even there. So I think that like, I'm just all in for, for UND winning it, but I really couldn't tell. I haven't really been – Paying uh, paying that much attention, just UND, that's all I've been surrounded with, watching them and kind of dealing the hype. And I've really bought in just because they've never had such a good first half of the season than they than they did. So that's where I am right now. And I, I will say this. Like, if you like, look at like, the region. You can find something good and something bad just because you play so many games in hockey. There's so many good things, so many bad things where it's like, you know, they're up here, then it's one line. and. You know, hockey is just one of those sports where everybody has their everybody has their uh, weakness. You know. But let's face it, the college hockey tournament is interesting in the sense that this weekend the regionals, semifinals, and finals get played, and then it's another almost ten days before you get to the Frozen Four, just based on the NCAA hockey not wanting to be involved with with the NCAA basketball. So there is that that 10-day split in between that really, I think, ruins it uh, when you talk about trying to hype something up. I think that the New England region will be the toughest region uh, based on Boston University having to go through Yale in their first round. Yale's got the the top defense in the country, and they've got the best goalie in the country in Alex Lyon. Uh, So that's not going to be an easy matchup for BU, and that factors into what David Quinn does with that one line. Does he keep them together or does he try and, and create some secondary scoring by breaking them up? Uh, you know, Gale is, is a team that uh, only gives up, uh, you know, under two goals a game. Uh, you know, Alex Lyon has been tremendous with a, a one five eight goals against. Two goals this season, you mean? Yeah, I, yeah, okay, for the I season. Said, I, and, I, said game. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 
And that's why I say it's the toughest region. They didn't do BU any favors here. There's no question about it. And I think that uh, Yale's problem is scoring goals. Uh, and so uh, they're very comfortable with the idea of playing the 3-2-2-1, one nothing tie game, uh, which, you know, Boston University with, with the best offense in the country averaging about four goals a game, that's not something they've done very often. So if this becomes that kind of a game, uh, there could be problems for BU just based on the inability of their second and third lines to really produce the way that you would hope they could. John and Jamie, you guys both mentioned Minnesota and Minnesota Duluth, but the one team you guys failed to mention happens to be the number one seed, which is Minnesota State Mankato. Uh, if you look at their route, which I am right now, yeah, they have Rochester feel, Institute. Even though they're ranked number one, they could potentially be playing Miami, Ohio in the Frozen Four to get to the national championship game. That's a way, way easier route than Boston University. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I would have Minnesota State playing Harvard, by the way, in the regional final. Yep. Yep. I think that could be the route. Well, no. It would be it would they would either play them and they would play them in the quarterfinal, right? It'd be the second round, actually. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Like Harvard will play in the winner of that plays Mankato, uh, and then of course it will be Miami, Ohio, Providence versus Denver, Boston College. Uh, the winner of that would go to the the top part of the Frozen Four. But you you look at Mankato's route; it's a heck of a lot easier than than Boston University and the University of North Dakota. I mean, we're talking about St. Cloud State, which is a familiar opponent. If I remember correctly, St. Cloud State has beaten UND twice this year. Uh, you look at Boston University, they play Yale, which is first match. Well, Yale's not a bad team. Uh, if we remember, uh, they made a run in the, in the tournament last year. And, of course, whenever you have to play a Minnesota-based hockey program, uh, your, your money, you better be coming prepared. And in that second matchup, Boston University is either going to have to play Minnesota Duluth at 25-3 and or – the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers at 23-12-3. That bottom bracket is, hands down, that's the toughest, that's going to be the toughest region, uh, hands down, in this tournament. Uh, If if you're looking for a team to coast, I would say, and I would put money on, Mankato coasting in their region. Yeah, I would agree. There's no doubt doubt that they've been really good, but who do you guys think is, you know, more of uh, more of the underdog. You know, if Boston University goes through, they're gonna. That's gonna be exciting for them. You know, it's. Uh, it's well, let's face it; they're playing in their backyard too, which is really gonna help. That's not gonna be a, a a long bus trip from Commonwealth Avenue to Manchester, New Hampshire. So that helps as well. Yeah, I'm just saying it's gonna it's gonna be a tough trip. But looking at uh, looking at teams that maybe you think are underranked, uh, who do you have, John? I think Harvard is one of those teams that could be. I, I've got them beating Nebraska-Omaha because Nebraska-Omaha has stumbled over their last uh, uh, 10 games going 2-5-3. And, three. and uh, you know, Harvard has played uh, awfully well lately. Uh, so I've got them getting to uh, uh, the Midwest uh, finals, probably playing a Minnesota State because I think Minnesota State will take care of RIT, uh, a team that uh, in the past has made uh, Frozen Four runs. They got to uh, a Frozen Four in Detroit. Uh, so I think... Uh, you know, Harvard could be one of those teams that makes the, makes the second New England team that gets to the Garden to play in, in, in the Frozen Four. Um, 
I think Boston College is a team that has struggled lately, did not play very well in, in the hockey's quarterfinals at all, losing to Vermont at home. Uh, so I, and that's, it's a team that's, that's offense has really sputtered lately, which is not a good sign at, at this time of the year, especially when you're talking about a, a one-and-done format. Uh, they've already played Denver this year. They split two games with Denver back in uh, uh, Halloween and, and uh, November 1st. So there's some familiarity between those two teams. Miami of Ohio is always a team that you have to pay attention to. Um, they do a great job of uh, kind of being under the radar, but those that pay attention to college hockey know how good that program is. It wouldn't surprise me if Miami of Ohio made it out of Providence and got to uh, uh, the Frozen Four themselves. Yeah, that makes a good point. Mine is going to be the Gophers. I feel like they, they're off and on, but they definitely have talent, that they're kind of a team to spark spark every once in a while and you know the Big Ten again you know I feel like I'm just hating on them but it's true overall they've had you know a horrible record this year so it hurt all them pair wise but I think just getting into the tournament was something for them and you know we saw last year they're gonna fight till the very end and you know unfortunately it left UND fans crying including my roommate last year I do find it interesting. When they set this up last Sunday, I do find it interesting that they sent both Minnesota Duluth and Minnesota to Manchester, New Hampshire. I wonder if it's just so Minnesota fans, just because you know New Hampshire might have just as many Minnesotans as, you know, as people in the, that live I mean, in the I, state. But I, I did find that very interesting that they would send both. I, I really didn't expect that when when the names started popping up on the screen. Yeah, so I I wonder that'd be kind of interesting to find out if it was. I doubt I doubt it was just uh, you know luck of the draw or whatever you know because you know Minnesota fans are going to go there and that's another reason why it's going to be even a tougher matchup for anybody that has to play either Minnesota team, including the Gophers. So they're kind of my, my, I don't know, my pick. I don't know how exactly far they'll go, but I think that they're definitely going to upset uh, that they're going to show their talent because they, they've proved they can play in the playoffs in past, and so that's going to be kind of my team, but it's definitely going to be exciting. Oh, it always is. I think that, you know, the time has come for the NCAA to really consider the idea of expanding this from 16 to maybe 18 or potentially 20. Uh, I I do think that uh, um, it's something that the NCAA really has has a feeling that they don't necessarily need to do at the moment. But I do think, especially with the arrival of Arizona State next year into D1 hockey, that I do think the time has come uh, for the NCAA to reconsider the idea of adding at least two more teams to this format. Yeah, you know, John, it's funny you mentioned that. What do you think of Arizona State coming uh, coming into Division One from the ACHA Division One? Oh, I I think it's it's a great thing, and I think it will open up the floodgates for club college hockey programs. And we had uh, you know we had earlier on we had Coach Dowdy on talking about club football. There are plenty of club hockey programs out there as well, and I think west of the Mississippi River, I think college hockey is the floodgates are going to open with the arrival of Arizona State in D one hockey. Yeah, I think a lot of it's a money thing, because uh, it's funny you say that, because I worked for an ACHA hockey team for three years, and Arizona State was our rival, so they came to Minot, North Dakota multiple times, and, you know, talking with their players and their coaches, and the only thing that 
I mean, I can't say the only thing because obviously they had talent. And uh, I don't know if you know who Kale Belinsky is. Well, he's gone now, but he was kind of uh, powered them to win the ACHA national title in the Murdoch Cup uh, last year. This year they lost. Uh, they lost in the earlier rounds. Um, but their goalie Robert Levin, he's a sophomore, and he won the national uh, national tournament. His freshman year, but he tore his. He'll be back next season, but he tore his ACL the first game of the tournament. So that's kind of what hurt them this year. So that's kind of uh, going to be really interesting to see. And like you said, it's definitely going to open up the floodgates. But one thing is, is it's money. That there's a lot of money that goes into a hockey rink, and Arizona State definitely has it. You know, even though it's in it's in Arizona, putting ice in Arizona, but it'll be more money to obtain, you know, to uh, keep up the arena. But here, I know that they've talked about it, that it's still because you have to seat a certain amount of people in here. There's What else are you going to do in North Dakota except for play hockey or go on the ice? Like, it's already cold. It's warmer in the arena than it is outside. And so uh, giving giving them enough, enough ice time that they're having to go at 8 o'clock at night or – some teams have to go at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning just to get ice time. Um, our, they've been really good to our college hockey team, but that's going to be what's keeping a lot of these teams back. But I but I completely agree that it's definitely going to uh, have them considering asking people for money about building an arena if they think that they have the talent. Two things about Arizona State that I think will become very interesting. One is because you have a National Hockey League team out there, it appears that the, the growth of the sport in the state itself is really starting to, uh, to go on an upswing. You, you've got, I would assume, youth programs out there. You've got rinks being built. And so the idea of Arizona State being able to sell their product, I don't think is going to be as difficult as some might think west of the Mississippi River. And the other thing is, Scheduling is not going to be a problem for Arizona State because I promise you there will be New England schools that will have no problem making the trip to Arizona in either January or February for a weekend series against Arizona State. Yeah, yeah, and then we usually, uh, that's the way it did is that, well, the way it works in the ACHA at least, but um, is that you, you want to play teams that are highly ranked because that way it's done by a computer system. So when, when you're good, like, teams will come travel to see you. But, yeah, teams are no doubt going to want to go to Arizona State. They played the reason that kind of got them thinking about it is when they played Pennsylvania and uh, split games with them, you know? And now, was, how does that – now, how, does, how will that affect the state of California? Because eventually, if you go far enough west of the Mississippi River, you're going to eventually get to the state of California. There are colleges, obviously, in the state of California up and down the coast. So if Arizona State becomes – a, a program that shows some profitability and uh, can win games, at least their share of games. Schools in California, I would think, because you've got you know three National Hockey League franchises that uh, operate in the state itself, I would think that eventually schools in the state of California are going to at least consider the idea of following Arizona State into this. Uh, yes and no. I mean, besides ACHA, what's a really competitive league? You know, I mean, you have NCAA Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, and then I would say ACHA is right there. I know, you know, all the ACHA teams. It's Division One. It's the top of the ACHA. We don't play any California teams. Arizona, like we play Arizona and uh, 
we play University of Arizona and Arizona State, but Arizona State, uh, the Sun Devils are definitely better. The Wildcats, you know, have their games, but they're um, they're 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 not at that level yet. It's, it's more of a talent thing. Like while they might fancy the idea or say, hey, we have money for that, or hey, we have a sponsor. The idea of actually creating a program, I mean, maybe later on down the road, but it's going to take a while because you have to get the coaches. And a lot of these players, I mean, I'm sorry to say it because I'm American through and through, but a lot of these players do come from Canada. You know, you go into the junior hockey leagues, uh, you know, the British, I mean, British Columbia teams, and uh, that was where we found our best bully. I worked for them, and there's only three Americans on the team. I think there might be four or five now, but when I worked for them, there was two or three, and that's where you get all these good players filtering down into the ACHA. And then so when you look at the rosters, I have seen some California people on the rosters, but the teams themselves are not in California. So as far as it affecting California, I think it will take a couple more years because of talent, that all of the really good teams, I know Liberty, Liberty University has a good team, so maybe they'll consider it. Lindenwood University really good. Stony Brook had a really good year this year. And um, I believe and BYU Central, and Central Weber State Oklahoma. also have Central club Oklahoma. programs. Yep. Yep, they do. Yeah. So I, I, and as far as the Canadian part of it is concerned, you're always going to get Canadian junior players uh, to come down from, from Canada to, uh, to play here in the States, to play college hockey in the States. That, that's just never going to change. And I do think that although the junior programs here in the United States are getting better, uh, they still don't match the level of those junior programs that are in Canada just based on uh, the organization that those, those programs up in Canada have that the U.S. programs haven't quite reached yet. And as we talk about the June draft, and we will at some point, the fact that Jack Eichel could end up being potentially the number two pick in the NHL draft, I think, will be a, uh, a step in the right direction for not only college hockey in this country, but for the junior programs as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. And then uh, just last on that list, Central Oklahoma is another one of those teams. Uh, they actually won the Murdoch Cup this year. Um, so that's uh, just to add to the list, that was the final team. But, but I completely agree. And, and with that, folks, uh, you know, I wish we could stay more, but we can't. We're running out of time. I want to thank Jamie Council for coming on and giving us a pros and forward preview. And, then of course, next week, once the games start kickoff, we will update you on anything and everything, NHL and pros and forward. So, again, Jamie Council, thank you for joining us this evening. Have yourself a good night. Have a good night. All right, folks. And... That's going to about do it. We're about running out of time here on the weekly show. Uh, again, I am your host, Joshua Zimmer. I want to thank John Doucette and Montel Hardy for joining me again this evening. Uh, same time, same place next week, folks. Have yourselves a good week. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.